Hi, this is Burl Bear. Our guests, the authors of Defending a Monster, John Wayne Gacy. Howard Lapidus joined me in the interview, as did Mark Boyer. We're going to pick it up with Howard asking about <laughs> the smell of decaying bodies. But let's talk about the smell of decaying flesh. There wasn't any. It didn't exist. You know, that, that was a bunch of garbage. And actually, that was a, uh, you know, when issuing a search warrant, the police need something. And uh, Gacy had a, uh, you know, the crawl space was kind of a, a typical crawl space that wasn't, wasn't really dry at the time. And there was a damp, musty odor in there. But there was no odor of decaying flesh in that house. He put lime over the bodies. Right. He covered the bodies. With I mean, you, do you go to a cemetery and smell decaying flesh? No. Well, they're six feet under. I mean, it, it, was all, it was all caca. You know, when people say they smell decaying bodies, there was no smell in that house. Yeah, I want to... I want to go back here to the to the to, to the phone call. Let, let let's let's just take it from your perspective. You've got to get a call for this John Wayne Gacy guy. Oh, oh yeah, I know him. Okay, fine. He calls. What what's the conversation? So you're a young defense attorney. Phone rings, ladies and gentlemen. There he is, right? There he is. And he calls up. You know, and he normally says, "Hey Sam, how are you? Go, hi John. How how you doing?" And he's like, "You do me a favor." As I usually do, like if any of you guys call me, I'm talking to you on the phone now. I, we know each other. I said, sure, no problem. What do you need? And uh, he said, can you find out why the displays police are tailing me? They're ruining my business. I said, oh, what do you mean, why are the displays police tailing He said, you know all those guys over there. My office was right next to the, to the displays police department. And uh, he said, you know all those guys. Just find out. You know, because they're really, they're, I don't know what's going on. They're, they're tailing me. They're ruining my business. And I said, well, I'll try to find out, John. I know all those guys. I'm sure I'll be able to find out. Don't worry about it. And and that was basically the first phone call. It was a very short phone call. And then I went out and started talking. I mean, I didn't look at it as some big case that was coming into the office. Right. Let's do this guy a favor. Okay. <laughs> then what happened? What a favor it was. Then what, but then what was the next thing that happened? Well, you know, he called me. And then I, I proceeded, and I didn't have a lot else to do in private practice other than set up, you know, put my pictures on the wall and do different <laughs> things. And, and, again, do the transfer of my cases in the public defender's office. So I took it on, and I went to... Um, the police department, I talked to the chief, Alfano, at the time, and, uh, and he wouldn't give me any, any information. I, I talked to some of the local policemen I knew, and they wouldn't give me any information. talked to Herb Volberding, who was, was the mayor of Des Plaines, and all these people would tell me, you guys are a real bad guy. And I said, bad guy? Come on, he's a clown. Everybody knows him in the neighborhood, the kind of things I told you. He has these big parties, goes to children's hospital and helps kids out. Now he's a bad guy, he's this, that, and the other thing. Then I went to Terry Sullivan, who was the chief prosecutor, uh, my, uh, you know, the opposite end where I was, he was the supervisor in the state's attorney's office. And he, um, I asked him, he said, no, Sam, your, your guy's a bad guy. He's got a background and this and that. But he didn't tell me too much other than there was a kid missing in a drugstore uh, who was working in a drugstore. Gacy happened to be in there, and they suspected Gacy had something to do with the missing kid. And I wouldn't believe, I, I really couldn't believe him because I said, this guy's a, he's a good guy. Everybody knows him. He's a really good guy. And a little bit at a time came out. And what I did do is send my secretary at the time. A, uh, this was a girl, girl who could get anybody to say anything about anything at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anytime I needed any information, I would send her out to um, to talk to the police. And whatever police officer, whatever detective knew something, she would find out about it. That's a rare talent. Oh yeah, she had a very, very, very rare talent. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, she went uh, and she tried to do what she could do, 
and she came back to me and said, nobody will tell me anything. So I knew something was brewing. Something was pretty pretty big with this guy. And then finally, Terry Sullivan told me that um, Casey had a background of uh, sodomy in um, Iowa, which I was shocked to learn, and uh, he had been so, so judge, oh, so judge, who's who's? Did, help me out again. Who's Terry Sullivan? Help me out with that. Terry this was is a big the, piece. Uh, the chief prosecutor um, in the northwest suburban area. So he knew, and the cops knew that this guy's a bad guy. Oh yeah, they knew at that point. They, they suspected, they was, yes. They right, of course. Scene, but they weren't about to tell me a lot. You know, in the meantime, Casey kept meeting with me. He kept giving me some some crap. He would tell me the story about what happened the night that. Uh, Robbie Peace, his last victim, disappeared. But he wouldn't tell me about what happened to Robbie Peace. Right. He didn't know anything about him. He happened to be there. He was a victim of circumstances. And as his lawyer, that was my position, that he was a victim of circumstances. And even though he had a then I knew he had a criminal background, that even made him more of a victim than anything. Because sure, they're they picking on him. They were picking on him because of, uh, of his background. This you is know, uh, getting more and more aggressive to try to stop the... Uh, Stop the police uh, bail. You know, this, this is Mark. Uh, I was wondering if he actually served the ten years for sodomy. No, you know, and, and we actually bring that out in the book that he's a uh, kind of a sad indictment on our criminal justice system. Had he served that entire ten-year sentence, I believe the last murder took place uh, would have been almost ten years to the day. Yeah, on the same day that he would have uh, been in jail. So none of those kids. Had he served his entire sentence, none of those kids would have been killed. At but he, but, uh, but according to the system, he, he followed the rules. He was a model prisoner. Uh, he was out in, what, 18 months or so, something? Some, some, yeah. A little more than a year. A little, yeah. And, uh, yeah and, he was a model prisoner. But he went off into his, uh, his killing spree. Uh, did they not know in jail... Could they not see? Here's what really, guys. This is what really amazed me. He manipulated everything, bro. He, he was a consummate con man. He manipulated the jail uh, warden. He manipulated the other inmates. The guy was the consummate con man. You wouldn't know he was a killer. I mean, he had such, he had a marvelous personality, and he was very, very, very intelligent. That Sam, sounds Sam, just like us. Sam, when did you find out he was a killer? When did you know he was a killer? Well, about a week after he came in, you know, Danny could probably tell you the story because he's the guy who wrote Danny, how did you fit into this? I'd like to let's let's bring you into this picture. When uh, uh, when I graduated from law school, the first place that I worked was Amaranthi and Etchingham, long, long, long time ago. And um, uh, I've known Sam for all this time. And then I wrote a small, uh, a little novel, uh, and Sam read it. And he saw that I could write, and we kind of hooked back up. After he went on the bench, I went and, and had my own practice. So that's how we got back together. Right. And as far as um, as far as the night uh, that I mean, Sam tells it too. But as far as that night, uh, Gacy was asking Sam to see him one more time. To um, you know, to uh, he he had something else that he wanted to tell him. Yeah, Danny, you know, and I was really aggravated with him. I was totally pissed off. Yeah, you've got to tell this story, Sam. I mean, I wrote it, but you got to tell it. Yeah, you wrote it really great. I, I was really <laughs> pissed off. I was really, really pissed off this guy because my kid was sick, bro, my, my older son, and he had a real high fever, and he was hospitalized, and I was staying with him all night. Uh, you know, Gacy was being, the tail was getting heavier and heavier on him, and he was playing games with these coppers. He was playing games with me. He was playing games with everybody. 
you know, and I, uh, unlike I've been portrayed in some of these movies, you know, like this, you know, kind of a little laid back guy, you know, I'm kind of an aggressive, uh, you know, short Italian guy, and, uh, just pictured at me, and I was, you know, I was really getting aggravated with him because I kept hearing the same bullshit over and over and over again from this guy. And by this time, I stopped believing him. I had a polygraph set up, and he was supposed to take a polygraph in the morning. I think it was a Thursday morning or something, because I just wanted to, I had to know whether he was lying to me. I get a call that night, and I had been up like three or four days already. I get a call, and he said he wanted to talk to me. And I said, "What do you want, to, John? What do you want to talk about?" What do you want to talk about? I don't want to, you know, I don't hear the same old bullshit from you. If you got something new to tell me, tell me. I'll, I'll talk to you. But otherwise, I don't want to hear it. Okay? Hey, so, so, Sam, that's you to your client? You're, you're telling them, you know, you're, you're basically full of it? You're damn right. So I okay, you. keep going. No, no, this is that's great. Have to do here, this is great. Go ahead. That's not unusual, by the way. I'm lying to you. Well, I mean, they all lie to you. Right. Anyway, so I, um, he came, I told him, he said, it is something new. I have to talk to you. It's very, very important. I said, all right, it better not be the same old thing. So I set up, an, I left the hospital where my son was, and I called the other lawyer whose name was Leroy Stevens, who was representing Gacy in some civil stuff. And we met at my new office in Park Ridge, late at night, about 11 o'clock at night. Gacy's ta- uh, we were waiting there for him. Gacy pulled up with his tails right behind him, the Delta Force, uh, you know, police officers. And we go, in, we, meet, we go into the office, the cops stayed outside, and uh, we sit down, comes up with the same old shit, and I lost it. I start yelling and screaming at him, you know, pounding my fist on the uh, on the table. I said, Jesus Christ, John, you know, you, you bring me here in the middle of the night, my kid's sick, I don't want a beer, I'm tired, I think you're bullshitting me, you know, and it went through all this with him. Right. He's kind of looking at me like a little puppy. Right. And he says, uh, uh, and I start pointing at the boy's picture in the newspaper, in the front of the newspaper, Robbie Peace, who was missing. I said, John, look at this kid. I said, this is a good kid. He's missing. You were there. You have this conviction of which John told me was called Sodomy of Films, which was bullshit, too. But he said, I said, look at this picture. This kid's missing. You, they say you have something to do with it. He looks at the picture, bro. Yeah. He looked at me, looked at the picture, and looked at me. He said, this boy's dead. Jeez. Not the boy who was in the drugstore, but he's dead. He's in the Desplaines River. My God, you talk about, wow, my heart started pounding. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? He said, do you have anything to drink around here? And I happen to have a bottle of VO, which I still have somewhere. It's an empty bottle now. Body, bottle of VO in my car, which was given me as a Christmas present from one of my investigators. That's a closed, this is Howard, by the way. That's a closed bottle, right? Come on, Judge. It was a closed bottle. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. For, okay. The record, for the record, it was a closed bottle. Thank you. <laughs> I run out there, run out to the car. It's freezing cold in Chicago that night. It was horrible, icy snow. Run out to the car to get. I see the poor, poor police officers, his fa- tails, sitting in their car, freezing in his old jalopy. They see me grab the bottle of VO. I said, "You guys want to come and wait inside a minute? Come, we don't have to wait out here. I think it's going to be a long night." They come into my, uh, not the lobby of my office, but the lobby of the building. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on the first floor outside of my office. I sit them down there, ask them if they wanted coffee, if they wanted a shot, and they didn't want anything. And I went back into the office where Leroy and John were, were sitting there, not saying anything. I poured a little shot in each uh, plastic coffee cup that we had and toasted for Christmas. And Gacy said, fill it up. That's right. This is a few days before Christmas, by the way. A few days before. So I filled up the whole plastic coffee cup. He gulps it down. He's like, you fill it up again. 
fill it up again, he gulps it down. Then he looks at me, eyeball to eyeball, and he said, look it, I've been the judge, jur jury, and executioner of many, many people. Now I want to be my own judge, jury, and executioner. I don't want you to stop me. I don't want, I want to do things my own way. I'm going to handle this my own way, but I'm going to tell you the whole story. And it started in 1972. A kid was, I was uh, driving around the Greyhound bus station on Clark Street in Chicago, and I saw this kid walk out of the bus station. And uh, the kid was looking for a ride. He was new into the city, and I gave him a ride. Then he went into this long thing for all the rest of the night. For hours, Leroy and I just sat there and didn't say a word. And you must have felt like you were in another dimension. Absolutely. Listen, we got to take a 60-second break. Judge, we'll be right back with this horrifying story of your relationship with John Wayne Gacy on True Crime Uncensored. Hang on, we'll be right back. Some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting, did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes App Store. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapinus, featuring Mark C.G. Boyer and sometimes Marie Mackey Esquire. Produced by Magic Matthew Allen, who in turn is produced by Laurie Downey Jr. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Howard Lapidus is here. Mark Boyer. Judge. I'm here, by the way, <laughs> at the good wishes of Don Waldman. When Don returns, uh, then I will... Um, I yeah, will Don's uh, on the island of hiatus. We want him back. <laughs> so, uh, there you go. Um, by the way, let's do what he is there. Isn't that, uh, didn't I read that he's the executive producer of Celebrity Rehab? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's me. I, lo I love that show. Well, thanks, Judge. Thank my you very wife, much. Thank you. and I watch that show I, I watch it too, Danny. Thank you. I appreciate that, Danny. I, I, I'm hoping you guys are watching season five. Love the doctor yes. too. I, I was listening to him when he was on the radio, and still is. 
Every um, night. Still is on the radio. He's on the loop in Chicago uh, every night. So, uh, um, your celebrity, still got celebrity sex show on? Now, that we took off. Uh, and, and we're here to talk about John Wayne Gacy, but I'll, <laughs> I'll quickly say, uh, just because thank you for, very much for that, uh, I will pass all your good wishes on to the doctor, and I will. Um, uh, the sex rehab show, which I thought would be the biggest, <laughs> was our worst. <laughs> it was terrible. Most people do enjoy sex, whether it's yeah. with celebrities or unknowns. But, uh, you know, today we, we lost a, a, a very large celebrity to a, what looks like the disease of alcohol and oh, drug yeah. abuse in yeah. Amy Winehouse. Yeah. Oh, no, really? Yeah, yeah. I heard yeah. about yeah, that. She died. Oh, uh, she was found this morning. Well, that, let's get that was a matter of time. Yeah. Yes, it was, and we reached out to her, but unfortunately, we couldn't get to her. Very sad, yeah. but not unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, your aha moment. You're sitting there, and John Wayne Gacy is laying out this horrifying story. You must have been dumbstruck. Well, the way I describe it, brother, most people are like, you're not seeing me here, but you know, I'm on the radio. I'm only five foot two, and I tell everybody I was six foot four before that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I lost about uh, 14 inches off my my stature. It was it was tough. It was like the longest night of my life. I aged years. I, it was a surrealistic experience. I, I I was dumbfounded. I was in awe and dumbfounded and scared and everything. And not physically scared, but just professionally. Did you, professionally. Did you uh, Sam, did you know at that point that you were going to take the case? Did you think that this was something that you were going to have to live with? Uh, is that where your fear was? You know, no, I never even thought I never even thought about that, about taking a case. He was my client. Right. It, period. That was it. I mean I never thought about it. It was my case and he was my client. Right. You know, I always I never closed the door to him if he wanted to get another lawyer. He even talked about calling F. Lee Bailey at one time. And I said I He did much better, by the way. He did much better. <laughs> but he um, you know, so I never really thought about it. He was my client. So I never thought about whether I was gonna take the case or not. The the fear was what the hell do I do? What do I do with this guy? I mean, he's going to go... He's told me this horrible, horrible, horrible story. He's going to go out and do it again. Uh, nothing's going to stop him. He was talking about building a second story in his house because he had nowhere else to put the bodies anymore. And he had a... Uh, he, he, although he loved to drive down to the Desplaines River in Joliet, and it was like a pretty area that he liked, he really didn't like the inconvenience of going there and have to dump bodies off. That's why he talked about it. <laughs> and so he wanted to make sure his house... He could put more bodies in there because he ran out of room in the crawl space. So he was going to build a second story in case he had to put bodies up there. And uh, Was this bothering him? It was a lawyer. I mean, ethically, you know, what's, what's your obligation? Those kind of thoughts. Went through well, what, hang on a second. Yeah, back up a second, if you don't mind. What is your obligation? If, you, if he's sitting there telling you he needs to build a second story to store more dead bodies, you as a, as a officer of the court, what is, what's your responsibility? Well, you know, that's a, it's a real tough line because my responsibility, number one, is to my client to get my mouth shut because that's privilege. It's absolute, unequivocal privilege yeah. if he's telling me about a crime he has committed. Now, on the other hand, as you correctly point out, if he's talking about a future crime, I certainly cannot be part of that. Uh, and as an officer of the court, it's my duty to try to stop that or to go to law enforcement or to go to some some body somewhere to let him know that it's going to happen to prevent it. Otherwise, I'm part of the crime. Even if it's, it's off the even if it's off the record. Even I mean, somehow you. I mean, you. you it's a small town. You guys kind of all knew each other. Um, you know, did you, it, when you said you were afraid here, it's three o'clock in the morning or whatever time it is, and you're hearing this 
unbelievable confession by John Wayne Gacy, who's one of the you know the right. worst mass murderers of all time, sitting in your office, and now he's telling you not only has he done this body of work, so to speak, body of work, but he's got a future plan. A future plan. And he wanted to show us the crawl space. He wanted to show us where all these bodies were, which he did not want to see. See the word. If I hear his words, that's privilege, and I I cannot repeat that. I cannot disclose that. That's privilege. But if he shows me where the uh, the physical evidence is of a crime, right? Then I'd have a duty to disclose that. Well, then there is a question there because at the time there was a Supreme Court case pending for two public defenders out of New York who uh, knew where a body was, and they wouldn't disclose it on their privilege. They were ordered to disclose it by the courts. They were held in contempt. The issue went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they were ordered to disclose the uh, the whereabouts of the body. The court held that there was not privilege um, because it, it wasn't, you know, the, the words, the claim. They saw physically where the evidence was. So I didn't want to see it. I knew about that case, and I didn't right. want to see... Where, but where do you draw? Where's your moral line, Sam? I, you, know, oh. you know, I mean, as a matter of disclosure, I represent two fairly high-profile attorneys in uh, Mark Garagos and and, uh, and Mark Aguilar. So I have these kinds of discussions with them because it fascinates me, you know, as to where and and to be able to talk to you and have the privilege of talking to you about it. Uh, and both you guys, uh, defense attorneys, where are where's your moral? Where's your compass go off? You know, well, to pull ourselves. You know, it's that's where the fear. And like I said, it wasn't a physical fear. It wasn't like a, a fear of him. It was a, a professional fear. Where where does that line stop? There did he really tell me about a future crime? No. I mean, I I knew he was going to. His thought was to continue doing this. That he was in a situation where he was going to be confronted with that again. But do I disclose that? I can't disclose that to anybody because it's not a specific crime. That I'm not being made part of a crime or a plan. This guy was crazy. He was crazy, and uh, what do I do for that? So what I decided to do, the way I handled it, Burrow, was after, well, Gacy went up falling asleep after a few hours. And after a few more drinks. Oh, so it was, there, yeah. was he an alcoholic? No, no, but he used to take, I wouldn't say he was an alcoholic, but he used to, uh, he used to mix uh, booze and, and marijuana. And Valium. The, you know, Valium, a lot of pills, Valium. But uh, I, I wouldn't really say he was an alcoholic. The guy worked, he was a workaholic. Uh, he worked 20 hours a day, and I think a lot of it was to, so he would avoid getting into that Dr. or Mr. Hyde personality. Most so, of the time he was Dr. Jekyll, and he was working hard and, and trying to keep himself out of trouble. And then when he would find himself in a situation where he was engaged in a sexual act with uh, somebody he really didn't want to be involved in a sexual act with, um, which he said never was by force, but he, you know, he conned himself, too. And you're talking about males at this point. Males. So this, is a guy, this is a guy that was married twice. And married twice. Whatever happened to his, his biological kids? You know, I don't know. And that is a very, very good question because I always wondered, uh, you know, what kind of study could be done or what they turned out to be like. Well, my question is genetically, yeah, there we go. We're both on the same page. Yeah, genetically, what's, you know... There has also the emotional content as well. Well, that's a whole other part. Yeah, it's a whole other piece. The other thing, I, I would just interject, the other thing about Gacy is the way he was raised. And, you know, I mean, he was clearly homosexual, and he hated homosexuals. He, so he had more of a conflict raging within himself uh, than you can imagine. Why the, why the hate for homosexuals? His father. 
Imagine this. Confess the hate for homosexuals. Whether he really hated them or not, because he right. Well, don't you think then? My guess in studying this is, is he? You know, that was one big front. Well, tell about the deal with his dad, Danny. Yeah. Imagine the expectations of a man who names his son John Wayne. You know, people often say uh, John John Wayne Gacy Jr. John Wayne Gacy was not a junior. John Gacy Sr. was John Stanley Gacy. Right. So this man, say, he named his son John Wayne. And what he got was a fat, clumsy, uh, sickly boy who played with girls. Played mostly with his sisters. And, it, and there was a conflict between his father and him that lasted all, their, all, all of their lives. And John spent a good portion of his life trying to make up for that, trying to please his father, which he never did. Oh, I thought he finally, his father finally came around at one point. Did he not? No. No, and his father it, died. That was one of the problems. You hear me? They lose you again? Hello. Yeah, yeah, you there. Yeah, we got you. Everyone's here. Hello. Yeah, yeah we, we got we're you. All, we got you. We're all listening intently. Go ahead, guys. We were talking about his dad and uh, him never pleasing his dad. So he never he never pleased his dad. So therefore, we've got a guy that was you know completely conflicted and always reaching out and trying to please his dad. And he was supposed to be the big John Wayne figure, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and, and wasn't. So. Correct. So I, I'm wondering if we still have Sam. Sam, are you there? Did we lose Sam? Hello. There he is. There he is. There he is. Okay, Dan. Okay, well, uh, Danny, why don't you go ahead and tell us uh, about the relationship with the I father? I was saying, you know, his dad died when uh, when he was in jail. That was one of the problems. Yeah, he died on uh, December 25th, by coincidence, 1969. It never, and, and when his father died, uh, you know, John, although he had made it fairly well in business, he they never really had any kind of reconciliation. Well, didn't his father used to call him a sissy and beat the crap out of him and Absolutely. stuff like that? Fruit picker, sissy, well, etc. That's why I asked about uh, about alcoholism and drug abuse because usually, it, you know, with uh, with that kind of a, a background, Dan, I think, was an alcoholic. And I think Doctor Drew might call him alcoholic. I think his dad was an his dad used to be. You know, he was a hardworking old Polish guy, blue collar, who expected his son to be a, a tough kid. And uh, you know, but you know what the thing about that? And you know, Danny and I have our own arguments about this, and I've argued with the doctors about this. I mean, a lot of kids are brought up like that. You know, my dad was a tough blue collar worker, and mine spot out of me, and Danny's was. We didn't become serial killers, you know. We didn't become conflicted. But they didn't uh, abuse you from the for the heck of it, right? And the thing is, with that, and interestingly enough, his dad used to abuse him, and his dad used to go hide down in the basement all the time. Ah, it all starts to fit together. The whole basement thing again. Didn't he just oh, yeah. steal his mother's uh, undies or something and bury? Right, he, he buried him. He buried him in an organized fashion underneath the porch, which is like a little crawl space area, almost in the same fashion that he buried the bodies many, many years later. So yeah, that's, it's like the same play over and over again. How many yeah. years, How many years, Sam, did you represent him? And I know you did um, the big actually, trial. Actually, only my total representation was for 15 months. Okay, right? so... December 78 until the end of the trial. Then we filed our notices of appeal 
but I didn't re- represent him on appeal because we wanted a fresh uh, the lawyers to take a fresh look at sure. the case. Look so, so do you see him every day? Every day for fifteen months. Yeah. No, I'm talking about today. Do you still <laughs> see him? Does he, does he cross your brain at any time now, or do you just have you just forgotten him? No, I, you know, I, I, didn't say, I wouldn't say I see him every day. I, uh, uh, something reminds me of him every day. I mean, if it's a kid, you know what it, it really did, bro. When I was a judge in court, mm-hmm. and I would sit up there, and I'd have hundreds of people come in front of me, and and I would think about that case every day, and I and I talked to kids about it, and I would talk to parents about it, and I would talk to defendants about it, and in a really, in a way, uh, I thought made me a better judge, because it gave me that sort of insight into things, and, and you know, some, some days it haunts me, uh, some nights it haunts me, um, some days it, it makes me think that it, it was a good thing that came into my life, because I've been able to help other people. Yeah, I would interject that Sam uh, was the author of a law in the state of Illinois that over time was the precursor to the Amber Alert. It, it started the ball rolling. Uh, it, it created a situation in the state of Illinois where um, the report of a missing person, child in particular, but person uh, would initiate an, an immediate search rather than a 72-hour waiting period that used to be in effect. It was policy that, that they would even look. that makes such a big difference. Yes, and then and plus it was a statewide search, and when other states started doing that too, then we it became possible to do a nationwide search for a single person reported to a single police department. So, guys and Danny, in writing this book with with Sam, I, I, do you still do? You, are you haunted by this in any way? I mean, does this guy touch you, or do you look at this as a almost an inanimate object, something that didn't happen? It's a story, and the, you know the story but, that but, I wrote. But, but Danny, it's not a story. You know, it's a, this you know is, what he's, bro? He's haunted more than I am because you know what? He has all his clothes and everything. <laughs> I have all his clothes. <laughs> you have all the, you're not I burying him under the house, things. are you? I removed those things from my house. I gave uh, um, another, actually, a radio personality who who is a kind of a Gacy follower. I gave him, I gave him Gacy's jacket. I used to have the leather jacket, and I had his wallet, and I had all these other Gacy things. I had him in my house for a while. I had his suits that he wore at the trial, and I had a cat that sniffed those items one day. They were in a box, and this cat's tail fluffed up and started hissing. I said, I have to get these things out of here. These are evil. These things why are why does this sound like Steve Dahl to me? <laughs> no, it wasn't Steve Dahl. Okay. He's actually a friend of mine, a client. Right. <laughs> but he's... Um, oh, Steve's a client? Don't let me go No, not Steve. Not Steve. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the... Um, I wind up giving them all to Danny. When Danny started writing the book, I gave every... I put him in storage because I didn't want him to do it. Before. It came with the file. That no, stuff came with the room. file. He's got him in his living room. He's got him in his living room. Well, the- someone... I noticed a review of the oh, book, oh, uh, Danny. Someone compared you to Hemingway. I hope you don't shoot yourself. <laughs> when the show's over. <laughs> well, you know, you know, speaking, speaking of shooting yourself, okay, no, in, in all seriousness, and I'm, I'm kind of going down this road because of how spooky th- this is to just read, but it's it, it, your book is, like, I can't wait to do it from cover to cover because it's just the story that you guys have painted is fascinating. But, but living with it, guys, Sam, living with it as a client, Danny, living with it as, a, as an author, and, and I look back and I, I see guys like Jason Moss, who blew his own head off, who lived with this and documented it. 
and I don't think could bear even being alive anymore because it's so damn yeah, scary. You, well, I write these too, Howard. You have to you have to emotionally insulate yourself to a degree. Well, otherwise, detachment. It, yeah, you have to have a degree of professional detachment. You can't write the book. That's okay. That's as you guys uh, you guys as a writer. But judge, you had to sit in the room with this guy for fifteen months, day in and day out, day in and day out, and you're 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 trying to somehow figure. And let me get this right and correct me if I'm wrong. At least some you know, trying to establish insanity to at least not have the guy uh, die. Am I, am I right? I mean, what was your end goal? I mean, you confessed. Yeah, save his life. Did Burrell just say that? I mean, no, our end goal was to, save, was to save his life. Was to, uh, you know, we're looking at him as a client. I mean, in, in looking at him, you don't lay judgment. You don't think about those emotions. You can't do that when you represent somebody. It's, uh, he's a client and you're trying to protect his rights. And our, our theory was to save his life to keep them institutionalized, they have them studied to prevent something like that from happening well, in the future. Well, it's what Jose, think about Jose Baez said it at, the, at the end of the Casey Anthony case. Baez said uh, he went home and told his kids he saved a life today. That's correct. That's exactly how you feel. Well, you did your, your best to, uh, you, were, you were not victorious in that process. And I did uh, see an interview with you on television where you uh, commented, I believe, that the jury was so overwhelmed by the horrific nature of these crimes that they really couldn't perceive or really pay attention to the defense. Right. Am I correct because, on you know, that? My job, I would have been very happy had I saved his life. I mean, my theory was to uh, was to save his life and to prevent something like this from happening in the future. That's my job as his lawyer, to protect him. And, you know, people think, you know, defense lawyers do things begrudgingly or, or don't want to do it. Hell no. You know, we're, you know, we're true believers. We believe in our system. Sam, are you a father? I am a father four times over. Okay. I have a 36-year-old son, a 33-year-old son. My 36-year-old who was sick at the beginning of right. the case. My 33-year-old who was only a few months old when that started. They were the reason I wrote the eye search law because I looked at him and thought, number one, if those were my kids, Casey would never make it to trial. Okay? I'd find a way to get him as a man. But number two, you know, you can't do that because we live in a civilized world. What would I do if I were a father? Where would I turn to my kids? That's what made me think about the eye search law, my two sons. And, and I also have an 18-year-old stepdaughter, and I have a beautiful 5-year-old little girl. And do I think about Casey every day? Sure, when I look at those kids, I think about them. And when I, when I kill somebody, myself... Hello. Hello. Right at the good part. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're damn right. I'd go after them if they hurt my kids. But if you weren't, if you weren't representing uh, Gacy and Danny used the defense attorney, if you weren't representing somebody like this, uh, how'd you feel about the death penalty? If having heard that he killed so many people and had this, if intent? I weren't representing him just as a man, not yes, as a lawyer. Yes, as a man, as I'd a dad, want, I'd want to kill him myself. Yeah, I've mean, I've often said that. Yeah, I've often said about the, the case because I, I would think parents. I would... Yeah, he's got trouble with that phone. Yeah, he keeps going in. And now, what I always say is that I, I feel the exact same way. I have a 16-year-old son, which was about the age well, that right, the he wheelhouse. was searching for. Right, and. If if anybody ever heard a hair on his head, they they couldn't hide from me. But I don't want a criminal justice system that reacts like a victim of a crime, uh, because sometimes the victim's wrong. Okay, sometimes the idea that that this is the guy and I'm going to get him 
uh, is is inappropriate. It's wrong. I believe okay? I believe you're right, Danny. But here's a guy that you know has killed multiple, you know, you know, you know, tens of tens of tens of tens of of sixteen year old boys. You know, it's not like uh, you know one, and maybe you're not quite sure, and the the, the victim, you know. But also, he, is, know, he knows is, that he believes that this guy is insane. Okay. Y- yes, and I that mean, was the defense, and frankly, that that is true. He was insane. He no. wasn't insane. But they never proved. They never. They were never able to prove that, right? Well, no, no. It, it, see, the problem is, is that there's a legal definition of insanity, right. and then there's nut cases. Yes. Okay. Well, let's talk about the differences, so our audience knows. Well, it also depends state by state. You have the McNaughton rule in the state where this trial was. That's that's correct. This is the state of Illinois. At that right? time, yes. Okay. Um, so. The easiest to understand difference is you can't know that what you did was wrong. So if you have a John Hinckley and he walks in front of cameras and tries to kill the president uh, to make uh, Jody Foster like him more, that's crazy. But anyone that would do these kind of crimes is also crazy. But the fact that Gacy hid his crimes made Sam's job a very tough Because it job. shows that he knew that it wasn't socially acceptable. Yes, to say the least. Yeah. Am I on, guys? Yeah, you're on now. And then there was a, there was a definite element of premeditation in his preparations for the disposal well, was, of the body. That was the state's position. The state's position that there was an element of premeditation was our position that there was not premeditation. When he found himself in a certain situation, it would just happen. And if he ever were released from prison, if he found himself in that unstructured situation, it would happen again. But he didn't plan these murders. He stalked and he uh, he went after people, but he didn't plan him. He didn't plan him. Did you murder. discover any evidence or indications that when this situation arose, that he did anything to prevent himself from doing it, where he tried to out- outthink himself? Well, other than, you know, other than working extra. Right. Well, you know, yeah, he worked extra. That was one way. But then, even when he was engaged in situations, he didn't kill everybody. I mean, he was engaged in situations with people where he would lose it and uh, and act like a monster and act uh, totally bizarre. And then he would just change. He would switch over. I mean, this was a uh, it was such a bizarre, strange situation because it was very similar to the the novel uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Where, you know, Hyde was, you know, there was such a split in the personality, and that was Gacy. It was so hard for the doctors to even figure that out. Because one minute he would be the nicest guy in the world and uh, be very cunning and very manipulative while he was doing that. And the next minute he would turn into a raving madman. Isn't that uh, we schizophrenia? Have a no, right? not so much schizophrenia. Uh, That's what we, they couldn't figure out. It was a... Psychosis in West, yeah. Yeah, he's an enigma, okay? They're, they're, as most serial killers are. Yeah. Uh, who was it? Bundy. Bundy, had, you know, I mean, he was a law student. He was socially active. He had friends. He had people trying to get him jobs and all that sort of thing. And then he would have this other side to him. There are very few people. And Bundy like even this went out world. of his way to make sure he says, "What's the state where if I get caught, they're most likely to give me the death penalty?" And that's where he goes, right. uh, commits a crime, and then drives back and forth along the border, waiting for them to catch him. Yeah, right. And that's the sort of stuff Gacy did. That seems to run true in all serial killers. 
they play cat and mouse games. I mean, Gacy would uh, have the police tail him. He'd lose their tail. Then he'd call them up and say, you lost me. How stupid can you be? I'm stupid. I'm over here. That's absolutely true. And then he would would get away with murder. You know, just stuff. Little hints he would drop to them. But he had the kind of personality that the tails, the police officers that were tailing him, used to go to his house for dinner, used to go to bars with him. That's that's, that's driving me out of my mind, guys, because, you know, these are guys that are, you know, they are entrusted in keeping a guy like that away from my kids and uh, they're, you know they're 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 splitting a pot roast at the house but they it's don't know he's the guy yet at well this but point. they're what are they doing there burl yeah. why was the only way to engage him they, they, they had to they had to somehow engage him they're waiting for him to talk a lot right there's different okay. techniques and these right. guys are on him constantly so that's a, t- a technique is to you know pop over for turkey dinner because they, they were playing the they were playing in the Gacy's web, but he was also playing into their web. I mean, okay. he was uh, he was playing his little cat and mouse games as serial killers do. Like but he wanted to get he wanted to eventually get caught. Did he, did, when he told you in the office and he confessed to you, did was there this massive sense of relief? Did you see that come over him? Um, while he was talking to us, we did. But then after he fell asleep, he woke up and you know, I didn't finish that story. He you know he fell asleep. For a while, we, we made an appointment with a psychiatrist. The way I handle it is we made a, an appointment with a psychiatrist at Weiss Memorial Hospital in the morning. We called a number of doctors. We finally found one who would see him. I was planning to have him commit himself and then try to work it out from that where we had time to figure things out. He was going to be committed. And uh, then he fell asleep, and when he woke up, he totally forgot that he told us everything. Oh. He came walking at me uh, in, a, in a half asleep, almost a... Uh, uh, hypnotic state or sleepwalking state he's walking toward, right toward me with his arms up I picked up a baseball bat in my office I was going to hit him with a baseball bat oh, a couple we things did. why was there a baseball bat in your office yeah, I'm a White Sox fan it was an autographed baseball bat okay from, uh, and and uh, did you did you record this interview when he no. confessed no, okay. I was going to record an interview with her client okay. I, I don't I know I recorded everything immediately the next day as to what he told me I have that recorded for my dictation purposes you still, have, you still have that Absolutely. Great. Great. But it was just, uh, you know, it was a horrible night. Now, when, when, when we read the book, that's going to be, you're going to be going almost you know, word for word from that, correct? Yes. Is it, to say a few things about the book, Please. first of all, first of all, um, Sam is the living incarnation of Rudy Baylor. The, the story is not scary, okay? The first couple chapters are... You have to tell the reader what this guy did, and so those those chapters are scary. The rest of it is um, a, a legal thriller, and um, but every word that's in quotes in that book, particularly words spoken in court, are taken straight from the transcripts. It was a labor. It was an interesting. Uh, Experience because I used the actual words. I had the actual words. Now, in the front of the book, I had to improvise a bit, but I was taking that from statements to the police. We had statements from his um, uh, mother, statements from the Peace family. We and so I could piece together what actually happened between the two of them in that house that night. That's the part that's scary. The rest of the book is a legal thriller, and uh, it's it's a great read and an interesting. Well, the reviews, thriller. the advanced reviews on the book are fantastic. Mm-hmm. I would like to know. Uh, this is Mark. Um, why now? 
I never was able to, I've been wanting to do this for a long time, you know, and I struggled, you know, we talked about privilege before, I certainly struggled with the issue of privilege, even after somebody's dead, I mean, there's certain, certain issues regarding privilege, and I struggled with that, and I always wanted to tell this story, um, to set the record straight for history, I want to tell the story the way it should be told, the kind of story that would send a message, uh, sort of like in the genre of In Cold Blood, you know, that, that, that kind of non-fiction novel. I could never find anybody to do it. I wish I had known Burl. Burl, I would have called you. And, uh, well, then, uh, Daniel will be out of work. I mean, uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll do the next book. Call me, and I'll make the deal for you. But, but, the, <laughs> but I read, you know, but I, uh, you know, I read Danny's work, and I knew Danny for a long time. Right. And, and most people who were going into the book with me made it sound like I did it begrudgingly. I didn't have not do this begrudgingly. I did it because that's my job. Because it's my passion. You know, I'm a lawyer, but the friends. Did he want you to save his life, or did he want you to have him killed? Gacy? Yeah. I bet you well, he wanted he to was... save his life. I mean, he convinced him. Gacy himself. didn't know what he wanted, to be honest with you. There you go. Gacy was crazy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, Danny Broderick was the first. And he knew me. Danny knows my personality. He worked with me as a lawyer. He worked in the courtrooms with me. And then finally, I find, and we just sort of reconnected after all these years. And Danny had written this other book called uh, Buford Tucker. And I read that, and I liked it. Uh, and I said, boy, Danny could really write. And then he started putting his Gacy thing together, and it was what I always wanted it to be, how I always had envisioned it, and um, it turned into a great story. Now, guys, the, the story's been told five, six times by others. How do you feel about some of those things? Without You don't have to get totally specific, uh, more of a general question. Well, did you, did anybody hit it right, or is there a lot of it kind of speculation and fiction? Nobody's hit it exactly right. You know, Terry Sullivan tells a good story in, in his book, Killer Clown, from the uh, prosecutor's viewpoint. Right. And uh, as far as the other books written on it, nobody really had the, you know, they had all the bullshit, like I said before. You know, they used the Gacy bullshit. And that's what I wanted to clarify. You know, a lot of things written in those other books were things that Gacy, in his cunning, manipulative way, was able to manipulate people and tell them what Gacy wanted them to hear. And what we have is a true story. We have the story from the very beginning. I knew when he was lying. I knew when he was telling the truth. I uh, I knew what he had done. And uh, we have the story from the beginning. And frankly, seeing some of these other productions and seeing some of the movie productions would sicken me. Uh, for instance, they had that one Gacy movie that Brian Denny played Gacy. Right. I love Brian Denny. He's a great, great actor. Lovely but man. Casting Brian Denny as Gacy would be like uh, casting... Uh, Dudley Moore is Superman or something. Well, plus, uh, Brian, <laughs> God love Brian, he was 25 years older than Gacy was. You know, he's old, Gacy older, was older. that big, mean kind of guy. He, yeah. was, a, he was, was like a, a Santa Claus. Like Santa, yeah. Santa Claus. There's he, a film that came out this year, or is coming out this year. Dear Mr. Gacy. Yes. Uh, I thought, what's his name's portrayal of the actor? Um, um, Forsyth. 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 I thought his... He's, his study of Gacy, I actually met with Forsyth quite a few times. Yeah. And his study of Gacy, I thought, was the best out of anybody. And I thought his personality, the way he played Gacy's personality, was the best that was portrayed of any of the. What, what about your book? Is there a movie deal for that? I hope so. <laughs> I know you hope Someday. so. Someday. <laughs>
some Dave guys know anybody. I yeah, I know everybody. Howard knows everybody. Howard knows everybody. If he didn't know him, he invented him. I sit here every week and I just pick off movie rights from great books. Okay, you got to read the book. Oh, don't worry, I don't have to read anything. I love this story. I, I will read the book. There's no no question. I'm waiting to think it's out August 1st, if I'm not mistaken. Right, guys? Correct. First, yeah, I would like to collaborate with uh, Terry Sullivan, the prosecutor, because I think a real great big screen movie would be a combination of our two books. From the prosecutor side defense side and would be a great let's, guys great let's court. make that deal I just said that <laughs> that's what we're capable of doing no problem <laughs> you know I want you guys to say hello to my dear friend Georgia Durante who I absolutely oh hello gosh oh, yeah. Georgia Durante we got her we got her picture right here in the light up lounge oh uh, you, you do you know, you know Georgia Durante oh sure yeah she slept with everybody whose name in hey, for the bro, bro that's not that's not where we were going oh here. I'm sorry this is a friend of the court what is the matter with you I love you. Uh, as we, as we all do. Your well, Honor. Um, <laughs> now that we've made a we've made the movie deal, and I like that idea of collaborating with Terry Sullivan and putting the two of them together, and I'll just take a piece of the whole thing. But, now, but let's let's let's. But uh, all, all kidding aside, let's do it. So, but all kidding aside, <laughs> now make sure you call. All kidding aside, <laughs> I love the story. But all all kidding aside, let's do this, and then oh, are we done? No. I think I think we're done. Let's get these guys back in a couple yeah. weeks. Right, we'll My God, that. this was a fascinating. Come on, come on. To California. Like, oh, we'd love to have you here. The we're going to be out there. We're going to we're going to try to be out there the end of August. Oh, oh you got to come here. Come on, come here. Come here. Matt Allen, we will hear. He will. He just heard your best. He's just in the other room producing the show. So absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for everything, and uh, thank you. Get a great Judge, show up. Danny, come see us. And love. Thank Danny. you very much. Hey, I got to mention the Facebook page: John Wayne Gacy defending a monster and. Uh, Website is uh, defendingamonster.com. And the book is also called Defending a Monster. What an amazing coincidence. Yes. First right. of August, a couple weeks away. Again, it's a great read. Uh, can't wait to do it myself. We're going to. Thanks again, Thank guys. Thank you very much. Look forward to seeing you here live in the lounge. Thank you very Thank much. Ah, uh, coming up next, of course, the thrill of a lunchtime. Magic Matt Allen and the demons of decadence, including, of course, Howard Lapidus, the legendary Burl Bear, Mark C.G. Poyer, Johnny Cosmo, who's going through Michelle Bachman's husband's therapy, and he'll be as manly as the rest of us by the end of the show. <laughs> you, you don't have to bend over, Johnny. You can stand up straight. Come on.